You see these ankle rings? They came from a ship that was out from Persia. And these pearls? They're the choice from a fleet we captured off the Azores. I often wondered why I bothered to save all these things. Tonight I know it's because one day you'd be here in this cabin to wear them. I'll never wear them, never. Those nor any other plunder gotten by a thief and pirate. I only hate you and despise you. Thief and pirate. That's Errol Flynn getting the big diss from Olivia de Havilland in the movie Captain Blood. Of course, we all know what she really wants to give him, but he is a big, bad, troublesome, devilishly handsome, super dangerous pirate. At the end of the movie, Captain Blood does get that big kiss from Lady Arabella, and Errol Flynn, well, according to his autobiography, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, Errol Flynn gets a lot of action, both on and off the set. His life, at least the way he tells it, was one continuous swashbuckling picture. For instance, take the story about the time he got caught in a whorehouse in Cuba. Yes, he's enjoying himself there, and suddenly there's this noise outside. Um, Pancho at the window, thoroughly nude, looked down. They know you are here. Who's they? Then I heard, Bravo, Ero Viejo, Ero, Vianaki, come on. The shouting increased. I went to the window and looked below. There I saw an entire girls' school assembled. They were from a convent directly across the road from the bordello. There they were, even the sisters, all wearing uniforms, and they were lined up across the whole front of the whorehouse. Some of the girls were dancing. Bravo, Ero, bravo, Capitan Blood, Ero Flynn. I quickly pulled the shade down. Panic hit me, squarely in the guts. There had never been any bad publicity about me. There had been nothing in my private life that anyone out there knew about. Warner Brothers had had no difficulties with me along this line, yet. I was in no way implicated in anything. This situation was a threat to my career. I went pale. I thought of my father working sedulously at his experiments in embryology, the scientist disgraced by his errant son. What if he heard that a crowd of schoolgirls in a Cuban convent had declared a holiday and filed across the street to cheer up at me on the balcony of, of this place? If you want to find out how Errol Flynn gets out of that jam, well, you'll just have to pick up a copy of My Wicked, Wicked Ways for yourself. Or get my friend Tim Kreider to come over and read you the rest of the story. Tim's the guy who turned me onto the book. He's been pushing Flynn's autobiography for years now, like it's the Bible. And this summer, I finally broke down and read the copy he gave me. And I loved it. I've given that book to most of my male friends, um, but only the male friends. Um, in fact, my my ex-girlfriend frankly admitted to me once that she was really disturbed that I find so many of the anecdotes from this book so funny and so much fun to tell. She does not find them funny at all. Like, she doesn't find it funny that he owned a slave girl who was probably 12. Her skin was like shining satin, a color of light mahogany, and as I stared at those up-pointing breasts, he's very into the up-pointing breasts. This is not the only time he mentions that trait. My breath held. Or must I resurrect the cliché that my heart stood still? I just stared at her and could only gulp. I knew I had to buy her. I had to have her. <laughs> I mean, he's a bad man, um, which is almost... a you know, a redundant phrase. All men are bad. We know this. But Errol Flynn is an unabashedly bad man. He's an unashamedly bad man. He himself wanted to call this autobiography In Like Me, in reference to the then popular saying, In Like Flynn. Um, but his publisher absolutely balked because it was a filthy title. In Like Flynn was a phrase that was uh, popularized around the time of his much publicized trial on two counts of statutory rape. Um, turns out age does mean something in Los Angeles. And in fact, there are some fairly strict statutes about it. Later on, he made a big deal of having women show him their birth certificates. I don't think all my female friends would find it repellent, but I think they might not get it in the same way that my male friends do. I just think that it will delight them and that it will um, awaken something in them that may be dormant. It's not a book you read for moral instruction. I mean, that's what I love about the book. I mean, it's not edifying. 
But if you really want to know what it's like to be an actual flesh-and-blood sword-wielding pirate, then I assure you, you will find my wicked, wicked ways edifying. Now, getting my friend Tim to talk about Errol Flynn was one of the three goals I set out for myself for this edition of Too Much Information. Because the radio program this week is about piracy. This perhaps explains why the show still has less than 10 listeners. Because let's face it, there are tons of interesting stories about piracy out there in the world right now. I mean, just last week in Germany, the Pirate Party won an election. But do I have them on the show? No. Because I'm too busy gushing about Errol Flynn. So let's move on to the second big idea. I decided to get an actual Somali pirate on the show. I figured with all the high-profile hijackings of the past few years, it shouldn't be that difficult to find someone working in Somalia who could hook me up with a pirate. But when they say failed state, they mean full-on Mad Max the road failed state. No one in their right mind is working in Somalia, so that idea was a bust. But if you go to Kenya, like the Czech filmmaker David Shalmek did, there you will find plenty of Somali pirates. Most of the pirates, after uh, some uh, successful uh, action in, in a sea, like they, 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 they bring some money to, to the bosses, they have their payments, they, their salary, and it's like uh, $15,000 or $10,000, which is a lot in, in Somali coast now. So they become uh, from one day to another very rich and everybody knows it and uh, it's just question of time when somebody takes his Kalashnikov and kill them. So pirates, when they, when they get their salary, they have to escape as fast as possible from, from Somalia. David Chalmak is the director of an upcoming documentary about Somali pirates called Escape from Somalia. Last year, he took a crew to Nairobi, Kenya, to meet with some of the young men who've tried to make it on the high seas as pirates. And he graciously let me use some audio from one of his interviews. In a film, we will describe story of three men. One of them, uh, the youngest one, he's uh, 20, 21 years old, and his name is Aniga. We we interview him, and he will he will start crying after he describe his story because uh, he don't have uh, any hope. We would like to show the world that uh, there is no only bad piracy. There is ordinary people which needs uh, also understanding. And uh, I think their situation is unfortunate from beginning to the end. The people from Somalia are in bad situation and now in humanitarian disaster. And uh, all world are looking... Uh, to Somali people, like uh, they are pirates, they are evil. They 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 deserve just uh, death. And these people know it's bad, but they don't have option. And this is the problem. When I was young, I was in school, I was just a, a child. I joined a school in in Somalia. After the collapse of Somali now, I've never, I never went to my second school. So I was in a, my low, low level of school. So after that, my, my big brothers, two of them introduced me to this fishing industry. I become one of the top guys in the water. So I end up become part of the fishermen in Somali. He has four brothers and these are not brother from the same mother or the same father. One who is arrested in Tehran was been arrested late of this year. One who died was killed by French because after the kidnapped and hijacked one of the French uh, French ship. Now they were being attacked by French from Djibouti. So they all died. They were they were all killed. So he was among those ones who died. We joined, we, we went to hunt for a ship to capture one of the ship. We, we thought this is just a cargo ship. When we reached next to the the ship, we happened that we were being 
hitted by attacked by the military. So it killed somebody who was sitting with me. It killed the person behind me. I remained one person. At happened now, I I lost the direction. What was, what was my next action? So I was willing to go into the water. I say that was a deep again. It is a deep sea. I couldn't go in because I know it's automatically I'm going to die. I cannot swim from that point to the land because it was very far. It was in a deep sea. So what I see now, I was left with somebody who was driving. So we still struggling to drive very far. They shoot us, they shoot us. The guns were just passing, the bullets were just passing next to me here and there. So we throw all the, the ghost guys who died to the water. We threw them to the water so that we got a, a bit, the weight, the weight of the boat become easier for us to run away also. I'm happy that that guy who was driving the boat for us was, was some, somebody who was brave. I'm not regretting and there's no day that I'm going to regret about it, over what action I did or what action my brothers did it. However, they died a miserable death. But what I can say is, what I can say about it is that these are people who are different. Why I'm not regretting is that uh, this is our ocean, this is our water. There's a lot of illegal fishing done by Americans. What do we call you when our we as an innocent citizen of Somali defending and protecting our water? We are called to be pirates. But what do they call them? What are we going to call them who are attacking us in our water? We have not attacked or they have not met us in the water of Europe. They never met us in Americans' water. They came to us at our home. So, and the, I feel like they are the pirates. These forces who are attacking us. The Europe and Americans are they are the pirates. You know, it turns out to be easier to get a Somali pirate on the radio than it is to get someone who was sued by the RIAA. That was my third and final challenge for this program. I wanted to talk with someone who'd been sued by the RIAA for downloading music or movies around 2003 or 4. That's when the RIAA, if you recall, went nuclear and began suing thousands of downloaders. They hoped a few high-profile examples might curb file sharing itself. And I wanted to put one of these examples on the radio so we could learn about what it was like for them after they paid their shakedown fees, only to see downloading and file sharing go mainstream. Well, I found three perfect candidates, two of whom even have careers now in the music business, but not one of them would go on the radio. It turns out they're still scared of the RIAA. Too scared to even talk about downloading. One of the women I found works at a promotion company, and she told me that part of her job today is seeding her clients' tracks to the very P2P networks that she was sued for using. There's a history of trying to police domestic intellectual property piracy that goes back into the early 1920s when radio broadcasting was first invented. Adrian Johns is a professor of history at the University of Chicago and the author of the book Piracy, The Intellectual Property Wars from Gutenberg to Gates. It's a study of how intellectual property laws and policies are driven by piracy. One of the most fascinating chapters in the book is the one on radio. According to Adrian Johns, along with the invention of radio, we get the invention of the pirate listener. It had been one of the very long-standing associations that, that piracy, like, like most illicit activities, were represented at least as, as taking place in, in non-domestic settings. So piracy was thought to be something that took place in corners or back alleys. The thing about listening, pirate listening, was that it certainly took place in the home. The striking thing about radio when it came out, the thing that made it really revolutionary, was that you couldn't track who was picking up the signals. With every other form of, of medium, print, newspapers, you know, whatever before that, there was some way at least 
of getting close to a tracking of reception. You know, you could track sales numbers, uh, distribute, distribution patterns, things like that, um, because you actually had to transfer physical objects from place to place. With radio broadcasting, you have a transmitter, you send out the signal, and then you've lost it. You don't know who's picking it up um, and what they're doing with it, how attentively they're listening. So trying to figure out the practice of listening was actually a huge issue that was created by the invention of radio broadcasting in the 1920s. Um, and in fact, you can the ramifications of that end up being rather broad because they have to do with things like the development of the advertising industry, um, new forms of sociology, new forms of investigation of, of cultural patterns um, right through the 20th century. In the 1920s, Britain designed its broadcasting industry to run on license fees that would come from listeners. It was assumed that British citizens would pay these in good faith, but that didn't happen. In fact, the original fee structure was so controversial, it brought down the first version of the BBC. And then the government decided that all this pirate listening gave it license to start spying on its citizens. One of the, the outcomes of this listener piracy was the creation of what I think is the first anti-pirate technology, uh, which was a, a van with a direction-finding radio receiver mounted on the roof. That, that could uh, detect telltale signals given out by ill-tuned radio receivers. Um, basically, if you ill-tune a, a 20s radio receiver, it resonates with the incoming frequency and it becomes a little transmitter in its own right. So if you have a direction-finding antenna, you can track down where somebody is actually using one of these ill-tuned transmitters. And it was thought that pirate listeners being antisocial types would be especially likely not to have very well-tuned receivers. So these vans were built and deployed in London and Manchester to try to, to, to track down pirate listeners by the late 1920s. They, they came to be called detector vans, and they were a, a major part of the campaigns to get people to pay license fees, certainly well into the late 20th century. I remember when I was a child, they were still um, you know, trundling around the streets. It's always been rather uncertain whether they ever actually detected anybody. Um, I did come across a, a rather telltale letter from an engineer in the BBC decades later in the 1950s when television was introduced and the BBC deployed a new generation of detector vans to try to track down pirate television watchers. Um, and this engineer wrote to one of the senior officials at the BBC saying, we have these new vans and now it need not be bluff, uh, which rather implies that, that the older ones had been as much for show as anything else. From roving vans to DRM encrypted files, technology's done a bang-up job when it comes to fighting piracy. It turns out that the law is a much more effective weapon, well, as long as you can back it up with brute force. And one of the most interesting places to watch the strong arm of the law battle piracy is Russia. I know that sounds totally crazy, and it's definitely still true that Russia is awash in pirated goods. But don't be fooled by appearances. Look what happened when the band Deep Purple came to Russia. Deep Purple uh, came to southern Russia in you know fairly uh, big cities down there and um, performed its own music, its own songs. This organization, the Russian Author Society, sued the concert promoters, the group that organized the tour in Russia, claiming that uh, this was unauthorized public performance of Deep Purple songs. And um, RAO, or RAO, uh, won an award close to 15 thousand dollars or one thousand per song simply claiming that the, the promoters of Deep Purple did not clear the rights to perform uh, copyright protected music by the band in Russia in the territory of Russia so here is a great paradox right the Deep Purple performs their own songs on the stage and the organizers who brought them to Russia are now losing $15,000 just because they didn't run uh, this by, uh, by the um, RAO and didn't pay them 30% uh, of concert uh, proceeds. 
Olga Selznova co-authored the chapter on Russia in a mind-blowing new report on media piracy in emerging economies from the Social Science Research Council. She says the Deep Purple episode really got her thinking because Deep Purple is President Medvedev's favorite band. That shakedown should not have happened. But that rights organization, the RAO, is really powerful. It became a showcase um, to demonstrate how, how well the copyright now is enforced in Russia, how well it works, how now every tiny little detail, single act comes under control. Um, of the Russian government. The Russian Society of Authors just received basically a, a green light to go after any kind of violation. Now, it didn't used to be this way. And in her report, Olga Selznova attempts to illuminate for us some of the forces driving this radical transformation in Russia. So it's worth mentioning that Russia did not uh, join Berne Convention uh, on on uh, uh, intellectual property till pretty much 1992, 1993. So Russians um, kind of grew up uh, with the idea that uh, culture is really uh, people's property. Uh, it's free. Um, they didn't know the notion public domain necessarily, but that would game, uh, what it boils down to. And since the early 1990s, we see an enormous expansion of uh, uh, copyright industries and uh, uh, the enormous uh, infringement into the public domain um, from various industries appropriating, uh, you know, pre-existing works of art and essentially uh, requiring that um, every creation, every new product uh, would be uh, copyright protected. Enforcing copyright becomes big business. And this all now comes under strong control of few politicians and businessmen. So you're saying that piracy hasn't disappeared in Russia, it's just been taken over by um, Russian businessmen. We found the story that uh, uh, in a certain prison in central Russia, uh, the uh, director of the prison uh, bought and installed a line for uh, CD printing and production and uh, made his inmates, uh, the inmates under his supervision, to work on it, of course, for free. And uh, uh, this uh, was sort of uh, underground, internal little factory uh, that made music uh, CDs in an industrial scale um, using prisoners' labor. Now, you can buy CDs and DVDs in Russia that are actually authentic, but the prices are very high. For most Russians, they're unaffordable. But the prices of official pirate goods are on the rise as well. Selznova reports that Russian pirate DVDs and CDs are priced much higher than the same goods one can find in Mexico or South Africa. So for the Russian consumer, Selznova says there are actually three markets. The legal, the official pirate, and something else. We found uh, in, uh, in focus groups that people make kind of ethical uh, choice. There is a morally charged difference between uh, the pirates that use prisoners' labor or, uh, you know, we also heard that some psychiatric institutions even use their patients. Um, and uh, so this type of piracy is condemned. It really is looked down upon and criticized by the users. But um, there are also these kind of uh, um, pirates that everybody admires and everybody respects. Those who really work 
on finding rare material, um, uploading it, making it free, making it available to people, not charging any money. And, um, and, and that's something that uh, is very much supported um, by public opinion and uh, by, you know, by consumers themselves. When the Russian government didn't try to crack down on piracy and didn't try to regulate everything, and the Russian author society was not created and put in effect, we had many sort of small, medium-sized producers, well, pirates. But I want to call them producers because they were uh, bringing uh, good quality, inexpensive CDs and DVDs to Russian consumers. And um, they were fairly independent, fairly flexible. They were very in tune with what Russian listeners wanted. And they reacted to their demand to the market very fast. One of the defining characteristics of this school of Russian piracy, Olga Selznova says, is that they not only bring movies and TV series that are not available into the country, but that they also create subtitles for them. Lots of uh, uh, popular series did not make uh, to Russia for a very long time, um, like you now Sopranos, for example. And uh, so there were these studios where translation would be done and actual subtitling of, uh, of movies or episodes, uh, TV uh, episodes. And that became, um, that became, on the one hand, like straightforward service, you know, these people took, uh, took the role that no official organization was willing to provide. Um, another thing is subtitling. Very few Russians speak English or foreign languages, so it's very important to do the translation. You know, I... I do believe that this is a uh, this is a delivery of of goods that otherwise would not make it to Russia. When Olga Selznova and her colleagues began this report, the focus was on optical media, DVDs and CDs. They didn't even plan on including the internet. In 2004, only 675,000 Russians had a broadband connection. But by 2009, there were 10.6 million broadband subscribers. Online piracy came up in every discussion and focus group they conducted. It turns out that the internet is the key to understanding the real story of piracy in Russia. As we were researching, all of a sudden, we realized that we are missing this now super important, huge component, uh, the internet. And the services, uh, you know, downloading services, BitTorrent sites, they mushroomed um, in like with unprecedented speed. And there is a trend that the major competition to piracy in Russia will come not from legal sources and not from law enforcement, but from online uh, internet sites and uh, uh, P2P networks that will eventually be this third alternative way of delivering contents and providing contents um, that will not follow this strict IP model promoted by the state, but certainly will be very different from making DVDs using prisoners' labor. Transistor radio, even when the sun don't shine, you can hear your favorite rock and roll, rhythm and blues with a lot of soul. Yeah, oh, we love the pirate station. So 
it's the mid 60s it's the time of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Moody Blues and um, the population of the UK is, is able to listen to more or less wall to wall pop music uh, for the first time really and it's able to do that because it's being broadcast into them by commercial unlicensed transmitters set up largely on ships That's Adrian Johns again, the history professor we heard from earlier, the guy who wrote the big book on piracy. Well, he's really into pirates. He wrote another book on piracy, this time focusing on the UK pirate radio scene of the 1960s. It's called Death of a Pirate, and it tells the story of what happened when two pirate radio men, Oliver Smedley and Reg Calvert, clashed in the summer of 1966. First, meet Oliver Smedley. Oliver Smedley um, was certainly the leading character of a certain political meaning for pirate radio, if you will. He was an ideologue, uh, a convinced free trader, um, a liberal in the old John Stuart Mill sense of liberal, which is more or less a follower of Friedrich Hayek and uh, libertarian conservative economics. And he, he... was a, was a convinced um, member of this camp at a time when its fortunes were at their lowest ebb because in the post-war years, of course, these were the years of, of social democracy, of, of nationalisation and of public service in the United Kingdom and in, in much of Europe. So he's, a, if you like, a right-wing economic ideologue at a time when it was hard to be such a thing. So in, in the late 1950s, early 60s, Smedley heard about pirate radio broadcasting from operations that were going on around Denmark and the Netherlands. And he thought that this might be a way of undercutting the BBC. You know, he believed in this notion of laissez-faire and free trade and anti-statism, libertarianism. And he had believed in it since really the end of World War II when he was demobbed and, and went off to work in London as a financier. So he saw pirate radio as a way of achieving that greater ideological end of dismantling the welfare state. But what could he possibly have against the BBC? He, in common with many people on the right, saw the BBC as the, the, the most successful instance of a public service um, nationalized corporation. And these nationalized corporations were now running many things in the UK, like um, the coal board ran the coal industry. There was an electricity generating board that ran electrical generation and distribution. There were counterparts in transportation. And of course, in the National Health Service, which is the big and ongoing socialized institution in the UK. So he thought that if you could take down the BBC, then the rest of these dominoes would fall. And the way to take down the BBC was to produce an alternative commercial network broadcaster. So he wanted to set up a pirate station to, um, to inaugurate that campaign. Swing it radio England, where the action is. There was just one problem. Oliver Smedley didn't know anything about pop music. He didn't know the music industry at all. And he was much older than most of the people who were in it. And, and he was rather a conservative figure, so he wasn't particularly interested in, in, in the music. And the station that he set up, which was called Radio Atlanta, didn't really last very long as an independent operation. It had rather staid programming. And within a few weeks, it was essentially taken over by Radio Caroline, which was a much more teen-oriented, uh, successful pop Enterprise. Riding at anchor or carriage and safely outside the three mile limit, the innocent looking ex ferryboat Caroline is causing quite a stir in official circles. Now, you would think that if Smedley's primary goal was to take out the BBC, then he should have been happy to see another radio station succeed and give the Beeb a black eye. But Smedley had not just failed to make a go of it with his radio station, he had failed with other people's money. The trouble was that he'd set up Atlanta, his own operation, um, and it actually originally predated Caroline, um, but he'd set it up as a a shareholder uh, company, and people had invested money in it, and so he had to find some way of getting them their money back and 
preferably getting them dividends and increasing the share price and so forth, even though the station itself was now effectively being run by Caroline. So he began casting around for some kind of alliance he could make with one of the other pirate stations. And, uh, and that's when his eye fell on Calvert and Radio City. Radio City, it's on So let's meet the other guy, Reg Calvert. Calvert is an interesting character. I think he was not overtly political or ideological in the way that Smedley was. He certainly isn't a, a kind of ideological anti-Smedley. Um, I think that the spirit that he represents is much more one that's associated with radio since the early years. It's a, a spirit of amateur experimentation. By the time that the, the 60s rolled around, he was actually a very successful pop manager. Um, he ran pop music bands. Uh, he had a school of pop that existed in an old country house near Rugby in the Midlands. And he would send bands from this school of pop to run, to run concerts in dance halls across the country. And his, his setting up a radio station was really at first an offshoot of that band business. His ethos, if you will, is the ethos of the experimenter and the entrepreneur. It's not that of the political ideologue. He doesn't particularly have big national ambitions in the way that Smedley did. Oh, I give up. Let's have this Spanish flea from Herb Albert. Smedley first approached Calvert with a bunch of business propositions to take over Radio City, which, by the way, was not a pirate ship. Radio City broadcasted from an abandoned World War II sea fort called Shivering Sands. But Smedley didn't have the money to close the deal, and Calvert eventually started looking elsewhere, because like Smedley, his finances were also a wreck. Calvert needed money for his own reasons. He too was running short. And he got frustrated with Smedley, who kept promising investment from mysterious sources that never showed up. So Calvert went to one of the more successful other pirate entrepreneurs, um, the, the guy who ran a, a, a much more powerful station called Radio London, out from a converted minesweeper, and offered that he would sell Radio City to him. His name was Philip Birch. He was a, an American advertiser. And Birch agreed. So unknown to Smedley, Calvert did a secret deal to sell Radio City to this, to this rival. Eventually, he had to tell Smedley, though. And when he did tell Smedley, Smedley realized that this was a, a moment of crisis for him uh, because the last option that he had to try to save Atlanta was about to go out the window. This is when Smedley decided to hire a bunch of dockers and take over the sea fort. His goons pull off a midnight raid and shut Radio City down. What Smedley was probably hoping was that Calvert would be intimidated by this into selling up to him instead of to Radio London. At any rate, um, Calvert didn't do that. Um, he tried to persuade the dockers to leave. Um, he, he went to the police accusing Smedley of theft. Um, and then 36 hours later, he showed up at Smedley's door at 11 o'clock at night. And there was this confrontation. Again, it's not entirely clear why Calvert went to the, the place, but it's most likely that he went there hoping to persuade Smedley to withdraw the, the dockers from the occupation. Um, at any rate, they had an angry confrontation and Smedley shot Calvert dead, claiming this to be in self-defense. Now, Smedley was a well-heeled, well-connected, decorated war hero. He was acquitted of all charges. Calvert's family was devastated. For them, it was as if Reg, who was known as uncle to his radio mates, was the one they put on trial. But in the aftermath of this shooting, Adrian Johns believes the government saw an opportunity to take out pirate radio once and for all. The government decided that this was both the, a cause that compelled them to come in and do something about pirate radio and an excuse that made it possible to come in and do something about pirate radio. So very quickly after the shooting, the, the law, the Marine Offences Act, was passed, which effectively made it an offence to advertise on the pirate stations. So it, it tackled the pirate stations at the level of their financing. And, um, and that essentially worked. Their, their advertising pretty much dried up overnight. And all of the stations, with the partial exception of Radio Caroline, um, basically threw in the towel. They... they decided that they couldn't carry on. They couldn't see a way forward. But at the same time, in order to make this politically acceptable, um, the BBC radio system was reorganised. 
And it was reorganized from the old, rather staid home service, third service, and so forth, which had the big cultural improving mission, to more or less the system as it still is today, where there are numbered stations, Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, Radio 4, where Radio 1 is a pop station. And the way they set it up was essentially by hiring the best DJs off the, off the ships. They, they came into London when the ships shut down and were immediately hired by the BBC to create a kind of nationalised pirate station, as you were. And that's what um, Radio 1 became. So the, the character of radio broadcasting, at least, in the UK, and, and by knock-on effects through Europe, actually changed quite markedly as a result of that clash in, in June 1966. You gotta fight for your pirate station now. Yeah. Hallelujah. I'm saying shoot the pirate. I'm saying shoot the people that are stealing from us. The South African musician and poet Mizawaki Mabuli has announced that his new song will be called Shoot the Pirate. He says artists like himself must defend their rights because no one else will. What we like here is government support. The police allow these guys to roam around the streets, to be everywhere. I mean, it, sometimes it baffles the mind to see visible policing, but allowing these guys to continue to sell counterfeit goods. We, we have seen on a number of occasions where police in, in full uniform, they also queue and buy. Uh, the very same thing from the very people that they're supposed to be Mabuli quit his last anti-piracy campaign, Operation Dadula, or Total Eradication, in 2006, when he was threatened with arrest for his illegal raids on businesses and for inciting racial violence. Many of the Johannesburg stalls that sell pirated DVDs and CDs are manned by immigrants. But Mabuli says his message is non-violent. Well, if you're not a pirate... It's unlike something when you say shoot the poor. It's only I'm saying shoot the white man, shoot the white farmer. But in this case, you say shoot the pirate. Uh, I mean, a song is a song is not violent. So you cannot attribute a song and say the song is violent. And we are not instigating anything. We are just sending a public awareness message that it is wrong to copy some people or to steal people's intellectual property. As long as these guys are there, we will make life uneasy for them. So, whether by only any means necessary. <laughs> I really hope to get Mabuli to sing a few lines for me on his cell phone, but he said the song isn't ready. He might be distracted. I found a news item that says he just had a blowout with his wife, who publicly accused him of failing to lift up his main switch and satisfy her in bed. He's countered with accusations that she's a witch who flies with a broom. But none of this, Mabuli assured me, will affect the release of Shoot the Pirate. No, 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 no. The song is not yet done. But when the song is composed, then you know about it. Mizuwake Mabuli's ideas about how to solve the piracy problem might sound extreme, but many governments are now drafting laws that kick their citizens off the internet when they're caught illegally downloading. A few years ago, France instituted its infamous Hadopi law, a three-strikes-you're-out policy. And while no one has yet been barred from the net, the government is still promoting Hadopi. This summer, they launched a national advertising campaign Giant billboards popped up on buildings and in subways featuring images of young French children with slogans like Without Hadopi, Pierre won't grow up to be the next Gainsbourg. Or Without Hadopi, there'll be no way for Marie to make a living as a Sean Tours. Internet activist Jeremy Zimmerman decided to start his own Without Hadopi campaign on Twitter. I used the Without Hadopi hashtag, sans Hadopi on Twitter, and began to, to laugh about it, you know. Uh, without Adopi, uh, the, the president of Universal Music cannot afford uh, a platinum nasal duct in 2022. 
without Adopi, the Adopi Secretary General uh, will not be paid 10,000 euros a month in 2013. Some are very serious, like I'm not afraid of Adopi because we're not afraid of intimidation or corruption. And so we got 4,000 reasons of not being afraid. Adopi works on a three strikes principle. When a user is caught illegally downloading a file, he or she is first sent an email. Saying, oh, we saw you were sharing, you evil bastard. You risk to be disconnected, so we want you to stop. If the user continues his or her downloading, a second warning is sent, this time by post. A letter made of dead tree is sent um, saying, oh, we'll get you out of the internet, we'll, you evil bastard. If the user persists with file sharing, after the second warning, they are then kicked off the internet. Well, that's at least what the Hadopi law threatens to do. But no one as of yet has been kicked off the internet. And Jeremy Zimmerman says no one ever will be. Zimmerman's one of the co-founders of La Quadrature du Net, a center that promotes internet freedom and net neutrality. Zimmerman's been tracking Hadopi since its inception, and he says the French courts have already rejected the idea that a citizen can be denied access to the internet. He says Hadopi is nothing but a taxpayer-funded propaganda machine. This intimidation campaign is pure propaganda to make people believe that the only proper way to access culture today is through the intermediaries of the 20th century. They want people to believe that you have to consume culture like anything else and you have to go through the majors and to pay for each access and so on and so on. So it's a propaganda to, to, uh, to artificially prolong the, the life of the models of the past. But what scares Jeremy Zimmerman is that the propaganda is working. And he says it's changing the infrastructure of the internet. We have accounts of people who received email from Adopi. Some of them say, well, I don't care. I'm not even scared. I will continue doing it. Some others say, hmm, I'm a bit scared, therefore I will use a VPN or find a way to get an IP address outside of France and I will continue. And one of them said, oh no, I'm really scared, so I will, I will stop for some time. And I asked him, so what were you downloading? He said, well, movies, music and TV series. And I said, oh, so does it mean you will stop watching the TV series you were watching when you received that email? Said, oh, no, 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 of, of course not, but I will get them through some other means. So people are, are maybe scared, but they continue to access culture through digital means, whatever happens. This is catastrophic in terms of uh, ecosystem of the network. Because with file sharing, you pool your resources, the resources you're paying for uh, to your ISP. So whenever a work's uh, demanded, uh, it is made accessible. Um, people who are on the same network, on the same ISP, make a direct connection, which is virtually free for the operator. On the other hand, when people go to direct download website or streaming website, this is heavily centralized infrastructure that is outside of your uh, ISP's network. So it costs your ISP a lot. They will say, oh, look at all the bandwidth that mega video costs to us. The, the, the propaganda in the war against sharing is shifting the uses from the, the virtuous use of the network that is file sharing to the uh, uh, nefarious use of streaming and direct download. For the ancients, the pirate was the enemy of all mankind. That same logic drives Hadopi. And many other governments are set to roll out similar laws. A German legislator just introduced a two-strike policy. And in the U.S., there's talk of a Hadopi-like bill as well. But for Jeremy Zimmerman, campaigns like these make it clear it's never really been about piracy. Governments are not fighting a war against pirates, he says, but rather waging a war on sharing. When you think about culture, culture only exists because it is being shared. The very definition of culture is uh, shared values. So if something is culture, it's because at least two or three or uh, a huge number of people are sharing it together. If you look at copyright law that was written some centuries ago, there is indeed 
a difference between accessing a work, which everybody can do, and distributing a work to the public, because you needed to have a um, huge infrastructure of machinery with you know tons of steel to produce the copies. So um, copyright law was addressing those whose business, whose industry, was to manufacture and distribute copies. Well, since the last 20 years, with internet and the digital technologies being democratized, we are all having this capability of making the copies, distributing the copies, sharing the copies. So the, the, the copyright law still says that distributing the copies, sharing the copies without being authorized is a bad thing. But we have to think in terms of social use. And everywhere you look, you see that people who do the more file sharing are the biggest music and movie enthusiasts. They are the, the trendsetters. They are the people who go to the concerts, who go to the cinema. They are people who make the recommendation. And if you look at the, 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 the academic, the scientific studies that were issued on, on the, the subject, you will see that conclusion. The Adobe itself proved that people doing file sharing spend more for cultural goods than people not doing the file sharing. And if you connect the practice of file sharing with the very essence of culture, and if you admit that culture is something that is shared, well, it totally makes sense. The more you share, the more you favor culture, the more culture benefits from it, the more people will have access to the works, the more likely they will be to either buy a copy of it or go to a concert or go to uh, whatever theater or buy uh, some uh, goodie uh, sold by the artist and so on and so on. So we have to, to claim that, that sharing is not only legitimate, but sharing is good, is good for culture and is good for society. And ultimately what they are doing is not just attacking Uh, technology, they're not attacking peer-to-peer, they're not attacking the computers, they're attacking the very essence of sharing. The sharing of knowledge, the sharing of data, that, by the way, is the essence of the internet. By waging this war on sharing, it is literally a war on the internet. And uh, internet is a common good. It doesn't belong to AT&T, Orange, Vivendi Universal, or whoever. It belongs to us, the two billions of people who um, build it, create it, make, insufflate, breathe air into its lung every day. We are the internet. We own the internet. So it is our responsibility to keep it alive. This episode of Too Much Information is called Pirates. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, Laura Mayer, and Sylvie Kovnat. It featured Tim Kreider, David Chalmak, Aniga, Adrian Johns, Olga Selznova, Mizawaki Mebuli, and Jeremy Zimmerman. Special thanks to Eric Fay, Laura Parsons, and Mathilde Bio. There's even more information, including links and images, on the TMI playlist page. And that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. And this month, be sure to check in on the WFMU online-only fundraiser. Don't leave TMI adrift. All that and more at WFMU.org.